Well, this past spring, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians together, and due to time constraints, I did not uh, dive into a deep study on chapter 14 and the topic of speaking in tongues, but I promised I would come back to it. I never should have promised. (laughs) You know I'm kidding. The Word of God is, is written for our good, including the chapters that might be considered hard to understand. Now, if you're a guest with us or you're not familiar with this topic, please be aware that today's study is, is quite a departure from our regular style of study here on Sunday mornings. Today is going to be fast-paced and quite academic, but for good reason, as you will see. Speaking in tongues is no small issue among many Christians, and it has sadly caused much division in the church division among friends, division among brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to begin today by saying that regardless of where we might stand on this topic, let us remember that love and patience and humility and respect go a long way between sincere, God-fearing believers who humbly disagree on this topic. Now, just so I have a sense of where our church family is on the matter of speaking in tongues, I'd like to ask three questions. So first one is, how many of you would say that you have a strong position on this subject? You have have studied it in depth. You are prepared to discuss and defend or support your position using the Scriptures. How many of you would say you're in that camp? You have a good strong position on this. Okay, perhaps a half a dozen. And how many of you would say you're fairly familiar with the topic, but you haven't done any serious study, and you would hesitate to dive into deep discussion on this matter with others? Because while you know what you believe, you don't feel prepared to articulate and defend it from the Scriptures. How many of you would say you're in that camp? Okay, at least a third to half here. And finally, how many would say that you are largely undecided on the gift of tongues and whether or not it's for Christians today. Everyone is decided. Okay. <clears throat> no, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, <laughs> just means this audience knows where they stand, even if they can't defend it. Um, no, just kidding. just kidding. But to kick off this study, let's read some scriptures. There are only three books in the New Testament that even mention speaking in tongues. The Gospel of Bar- Mark, Gospel of Mark, which is briefly mentioned in the last chapter, chapter 16. And interestingly, Pastor Mark recently discussed the last half of Mark, chapter 16. It's mentioned again in in the book of Acts and then in 1 Corinthians, with 1 Corinthians definitely being the primary uh, teaching on this subject. And that's going to be our primary text today. Acts simply reports the occurrences of tongues that happened. And granted, even those reports, though, are highly instructive. So let's begin with Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Acts chapter 2 says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, that being the disciples and, and a number of believers. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Remember, this this was Pentecost. This is the Feast of Weeks. This is a national festival that attracted people from far and wide, even from other countries, to come celebrate in Jerusalem. This was, in the truest sense, an international Jewish event. That's why there were Jews, as it says, from every nation under heaven. So continuing in verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. Parthians and Medes and Elamites 
and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, that's Jews and non-Jews, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Then we jump to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 46. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came to Peter, that is, the Jewish Christians, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, the non-Jews. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Let's turn to Acts chapter 19, verses 5 to 7. Chapter 19, beginning verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. What we just read is the miraculous gift of speaking in tongues, speaking instantly in a foreign language that you had not learned. God clearly gave this so the gospel could rapidly spread from Jerusalem throughout the world. And the church of Corinth had this gift among its people, which is a quick side note, especially for those who are taking notes. This situation of the gift being at the church in Corinth teaches us several things. For example, number one, as 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, the Holy Spirit gives the spiritual gifts to whoever He wills. He gives it at His good discretion. He equips the churches with the spiritual skills that He knows they need. And, as in, and in the case here in Corinth, we learn that even immature, carnal Christians can receive the gift of tongues. I mention this because there can be a misunderstanding, and there often is, that only mature believers get the gift of tongues. Not the case. There is also no teaching in Scripture that pressures Christians to seek out speaking in tongues as evidence that they are mature in the faith or full of the Holy Spirit. So back to Corinth. Some numbers of the believers there had the gift, and Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 14, particularly in regard to the abuse and misuse of the gift. This is one of the rare instances in Scripture where we see an apostle reprimanding Christians for the misuse of one of the spiritual gifts. Think about that where they are actually told to restrict and control themselves. Now, I'm pointing this out because it is critical that we read chapter 14 in this context. Paul is going to address a lot of wrong behavior in 1 Corinthians 14. And if we're not careful, we might assume that everything happening in chapter 14 is spiritual and to be desired. That is not the case. We must read in context. Now, thankfully, Paul is going to set the record straight. Now, before we dive into a verse-by-verse study of this chapter, I'd like to bolt straight out the gate here by saying this. We Christians will avoid many controversies, many wasted hours, many useless debates by following this biblical interpretation mandate. Do not add anything to Scripture and do not take anything away. If you hear and remember nothing else I say this morning, perhaps this is what would be most profitable. Do not add anything to Scripture and do not take anything away. You've heard me say it many times, the Bible is not complicated. Now yes, granted, it is magnificently awesome. And yes, God's judgments are unsearchable and His ways are unfathomable. And none of us can grasp the mind of the Lord as Romans chapter 11, 33 and 34 say. 
but the word was written for our understanding. Every chapter is inspired by God and profitable. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know these verses in 2 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It is our responsibility to obey the command that stems all the way from Deuteronomy 4 to Revelation 22, and that is that we must not add or take away from the words of Scripture. As I dive into this difficult topic, though, I also need to be quick to say that I by no means consider myself to be a master of this subject. That's not an excuse. It's not a cop-out. It is my present reality. But thankfully, even though I will always be lacking in understanding, and even though my sermons will never be perfect, you know that the Word of God is perfect. And so my goal today is to point you to the Word, to challenge you to dig into it for yourself. You have a responsibility to search the Scriptures, to test what I say from this pulpit. And I have a responsibility to continue studying this amazing and powerful subject of the spiritual giftings. We're in this journey together, as you know. And I do hope you know that this is the heart from which I preach all my sermons. And I trust it's the heart of how you receive them and search the scriptures for yourself. Now, at the core of this topic, we recognize that there are a number of valid concerns on both sides. Whether you stand as a person who is more reserved and cautious or more free and charismatic, regardless of where a person stands, there is no doubt that we all want to make sure that we are not limiting the power of the Holy Spirit. His power to work in us and to work through us. If there are spiritual gifts to be exercised, then we want to know it and we want to avail ourselves of them. But at the same time, if there are misunderstandings of the gifts, which lead to, uh, if there are misunderstandings which lead to malpractice and abuse of the gifts, then we want to be very careful lest we blaspheme the power of the Holy Spirit and perhaps even fall prey to a counterfeit power. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to start a series on the book of Exodus together, following the God who leads. And right off the bat, we're going to see a number of amazing, counterfeit, supernatural powers. Perhaps you know what happened when Aaron threw his rod down and became a serpent. Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. And when he reached out with his staff over the Nile and struck the water and it turned to blood, Pharaoh's sorcerers did the same thing. And even in the New Testament, Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 7, 22 and 23, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out de demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Ye workers of iniquity, the King James says. Speaking of the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, verse 24 warns us, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. We must understand that Satan is a master of deceit, and he will stop at nothing to counterfeit the power of the Holy Spirit, particularly to mislead the elect, to mislead us, the people of God. So on the one hand, we don't want to miss out on the power of God, and on the other, we don't want to mistake the power. Thankfully, it's not a guessing game. God is not out to trick us with sleight of hand or a bait and switch with the gifts. His word is amply clear. And as John 16, 13 says, the words of Jesus, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, 
He will guide you into all truth. That is one of the confidences of the believer. I trust that we will all walk away from here today amazed at the clarity and the wisdom of Scripture. We won't know everything there is to know on this subject, but our minds and our spirits will certainly be directed in the right direction by the Word and the Spirit. So with that foundation of understanding, let's pray and then we'll walk our way through this chapter. Heavenly Father, this is an important subject. The power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't want to limit it, we don't want to miss out on it, and we don't want to mistake it. Give us wisdom. We know that you and your good sovereignty have ordained the gifts perfectly among us. Help us to use them according to your word, knowing that as we do such, the kingdom of God will be accomplished here on earth. We will see miracle-working power Every time a person understands the wisdom of the word, a miracle has occurred. Every time someone repents and believes and is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, a miracle has occurred. How we cherished the miracle we saw last week and the two young people testified of the salvation of God and the change of heart that he brought about to them and the confidence he gave them of truth and of eternal life. These are miracles happening in our midst, and we praise you for them. And Lord, according to your will, we would love to see more. We know that the harvest is full and plenteous, but the workers are few. Lord, grant us an understanding of the mission to go and make disciples to teach and to baptize in your name. And hallelujah, you go with us. Thank you, Lord, for being with us this morning as we consider your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now let me warn you, if you left your thinking caps at home this morning, you're going to need to borrow a pair from the person sitting next to you. This study in tongues is not for the fast food mind. As you're going to see, this chapter feels, interestingly, more like a court of law, and Paul is going to go full bore here. So let's dive in. Beginning in verse 1, we see Paul begin this portion of his letter with a prioritization. This first verse, this one sentence, sets the tone and the direction for the entire chapter. Verse 1 says, pursue love yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. I commented briefly on this last spring when we skimmed the chapter. Based on the context of the preceding chapters, it is highly likely that Paul was balancing out the truth that he had just shared. He was balancing out the church's understanding of what he had said. Back in chapter 12, he talked about the importance of all the spiritual gifts and the unity of the church. And in chapter 13, he talked about the greater importance, though, of love, biblical, godly, sincere love. And here in chapter 14, he seems to be telling the readers that just because love is greater, it doesn't mean they should write off the spiritual gifts. It doesn't mean they should look down upon them. He did not elevate love in order to put down the gifts. Yes, love is best, but we do still need the gifts. Earnestly desire them, he says here in chapter 14. And he continues the prioritization by saying, especially that you may prophesy. The Greek word for prophecy literally means speak forth. We know that the prophets of old proclaimed the word of God. They were the mouthpiece of God to his people. And today, we have the word of God and we proclaim it with authority and power that comes directly from the Holy Spirit. Much could be said on the ministry of prophecy, but that is a study for another day. Today we're going to stay focused on tongues. And here in verse 1, Paul clearly teaches the priority of tongues as being somewhere under prophecy, the proclamation of the Word of God. And as we're going to see, it is under it by a long shot as we'll see in verse 19. 
So verse 2, here comes uh, uh, Paul's contrast. He contrasts the effect of tongues versus the effect of prophecy, the effect of preaching and proclaiming. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. You could say that this looks like a case of a person being so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good, not for the church or even for the person speaking. The verse says, no one understands, even in his own spirit, just between him and God. What does it say he is speaking? Mysteries. Verse 3, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That is one of the clearest definitions, or at least the clearest purposes, of New Testament prophecy. Good biblical New Testament prophecy will build up the church, it will teach it the truth, and it will comfort and encourage the people of God especially as it relates to the cross that they must bear and the persecution that they will experience if they are true followers of Christ. Verse 4, one who speaks in tongues, in a tongue, edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. This seems to be clearly referencing the tongue back in verse 2, the tongue that no one understands, not even the one speaking. Some would point to this verse as being evidence, being proof that privately speaking in a tongue to God is biblical. While that might be possible, we need to observe that in this verse, Paul has not issued a command to pray in private in tongues, nor has he stated that this is the purpose for tongues, nor is he saying that it is even good he has only stated that such prayer is only self-serving, self-edifying. Whether such self-edification is proper, I do not believe can be confirmed from this verse alone, especially when we remember the context of rebuke and clarification that Paul is speaking from. It is also worth noting that Paul is speaking in an A-B argument with the negative coming first and the positive coming second. Verse 1, as we saw, set the context of prophecy as being better than tongues. But then verse 2 gives us the negative, not necessarily the sinful, but the negative that the, po the point that the church is not benefiting from unintelligible tongues. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no, under no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Notice the B half of the argument. In verse 3, he gives the better way. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Verse 4, which we just read, seems to follow the same logic, the same negative positive logic. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Again, that is not to say that speaking in tongues for self-edification is necessarily wrong. It is to say that Paul is putting it in the negative, or at least the less preferred. Here's the interpretation point. We should be very careful drawing conclusions particularly positive conclusions and positive doctrine and positive practices from the negative half of these reprimands and corrections that Paul is giving to the carnal and immature church at Corinth. Again, we should be careful in drawing positive conclusions and practices from the negative half of these reprimands that Paul is giving the church, particularly immature believers. Verse 5, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more than that, more that you would prophesy. So Paul continues the A-B comparison. It's worth noting that some theologians point out that Paul has suddenly changed from singular to plural in his usage of the word tongue and tongues. Whereas in verse 2 and 4, he referenced a singular tongue the one that no one understands. He now in verse 5 and thereafter speaks of 
tongues in the plural, and he has clearly now spoken positively. I wish that you all spoke in tongues. So in the prior singular uses, he has spoken as a matter of fact, or at least as the less preferred, the neutral, if not the negative. And here he speaks in the plural, and he switches to a positive tone. He uses this in a matter of compliment and recommendation. Some theologians believe that Paul is referring in verse 2 and 4 to a false, incomprehensible tongue when using the singular form of the word. But when speaking in the plural, he is referring to biblical, comprehensible, church-edifying tongues, the real spiritual gift. I presently have no position on that argument. And to be honest with you, I actually find it difficult to maintain through the rest of the text. Why am I mentioning it? I want you to be aware of this discussion as you study and in case it comes up in future conversation. Verse 5 continues, And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Again, using the A-B comparison, Paul is summarizing and re-emphasizing the higher priority of prophecy that edifies, exhorts, and consoles over speaking in tongues unless there is an interpreter. I also note that Paul is now clearly referring to tongues and interpretation in the public context, not in the private. In verse 6, Paul now takes more of an apologetic twist, not in the sense of being sorry for what he's about to say, but in the sense of defending what he has just said. He's going to make his case like an attorney for the teachings and prioritizations that he has just demanded against the Corinthian church, we could say. So verse 6, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? We've seen it before in Paul's writings, especially in this book. Paul is asking a rhetorical question. What profit is there? And the answer is obvious. There is no profit, or at best, there is little profit. If my language communicates no revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching, then where is the profit? The profits, that is the benefits of what? Edification, exhortation, and consolation that were just mentioned. We must not lose sight of those purposes for the gift in, this, in the first place. We see that those prophets hinge on the mind actually receiving knowledge, revelation, prophecy, and teaching. These are all clearly understood truths. So verse 7, Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, and producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me, a total stranger. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. You can just hear the passion in Paul's voice as he continues to give his best evidence for the proper use of speaking in tongues. Everything he has said up to this point points to this point he just made. The ministry of tongues in the church demands understanding by those who hear it. It must edify the whole church body by means of revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. It's not just a feeling. It is not just a spiritual experience. But there is clarity of truth. No language is without meaning, Paul says in verse 10. Even music communicates a specific message with a specific meaning and a specific purpose. His point, 
so should the speaking of tongues. And in verse 12, which we just read, Paul reaches what may very well be the pinnacle of chapter 14. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. The purpose of spiritual gifts is ministry to others, ministry to the people of God. I would humbly propose that this is a, this is a crystal clear pillar of truth statement that challenges the weaker interpretation in verse 4 that tongues should also be used to edify yourself. And as I, read, as I read the rest of this chapter, I just don't find anything to suggest that tongues are for personal edification. I'm humbly making this point because it challenges a major use of tongues in many churches today. That tongues are primarily used to benefit the individual's spiritual experience. Secondly, verse 12 also gives us a vital 30,000-foot view in that it reminds us that the focus, the effort, the desire is not to be on tongues. The goal is not to speak in tongues. The goal is to edify and build up the church, to strengthen it with the meaning of truth. Again, revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. Paul is providing believers with an overarching guideline for speaking in tongues. It's not the tongues we're to pursue, it's the building up of the church. And to be even more specific, it's not the building up of the individual, it's the building up of the whole. Tongues is not all about me. Tongues are a ministry of the Spirit for the sake of the whole body of Christ. Verse 13, Therefore, and you know that that pivotal word relates everything said prior to what is about to be said. Cannot disconnect the two. So seeing that all the points made are true, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. If the Holy Spirit has gifted you with the miraculous power to speak in an unknown tongue, you need to understand what you are saying. Verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. It's crucial to note that Paul did not say, what then is the outcome? It's okay to pray in the spirit at home even though the mind is unfruitful, but when in public, pray with both the mind and the spirit. He did not say that. He simply teaches that interpretation must accompany tongues. And yes, we are in the context of public tongues, but that does not imply differently for private tongues. Perhaps it's possible, but it is not implied, so we are not free to draw conclusions about private tongues from this verse. That's not even the point of the verse. Remember that Paul is continuing to use the A-B positive-negative argument, the less-better comparison. Many popular doctrines and practices regarding tongues are drawn from the negative or lesser arguments in these verses, just like the ones in the, uh, earlier in this chapter. I'm not saying that they are not accurate. I am advising caution in using that type of interpretation method. At best, it certainly needs to be verified in stronger, more clearly stated verses somewhere else in Scripture. Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted, that is those who don't have gift, who say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Same point, or excuse me, some point to this verse and say, see, you can successfully pray and profitably pray in the Spirit only without understanding. They're implying that you don't necessarily need to understand because it's a heavenly language you are speaking in. Some use these verses for that purpose. But again, we must notice, Paul also states in both six, verse 16 and 17 that even the person praying knows that they are blessing and giving thanks to God in what they are saying. 
they understand their words. Verse 16 and 17 teach that if a person prays out loud in church in tongues only, in the spirit only, it's not enough that he alone knows what he's saying. Those around him must also understand the interpretation. So at no point so far does Paul condone a spiritual but unintelligible experience in the church or in private. Even if it is possible to pray in the spirit only, while neither you nor anyone around you knows what you're saying, even if that is possible, Paul asks, what good does that do the church? His answer is clear, none. No one knows what you are saying, and the others are not edified. This is a good place for me to interject an excellent word of counsel on the, and advice on this topic from the website in the ministry, gotquestions.org. Mark and I have mentioned that a number of times, gotquestions.org. Many people believe that they have prayed in tongues, and I'll be quick to say that may very well be the case. I have not prayed or spoken in tongues, if there's a difference. Notice that Paul even references singing, uh, praying, speaking, etc. I have not spoken in tongues, so the Holy Spirit has clearly not seen fit or necessary to give me that gift. But just because I don't have it doesn't mean that no one else has it either. However, because I am absolutely confident, based on what I read in Scripture, confident that there is a massive counterfeit at play in many of the churches, not only in America but worldwide, I want to share this paragraph from gotquestions.org, an article titled, What is Praying in Tongues? if you would like to read it for yourselves. When a person believes that they have spoken or prayed in tongues, the website article shares these points. Quote, We must base our faith and practice on Scripture, not experience. We must view our experiences in light of Scripture, not interpret Scripture in light of our experiences. Second, many of the cults and world religions also report occurrences of speaking in tongues, praying in tongues. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is not gifting these unbelieving individuals. So it seems that the demons are able to counterfeit the gift of speaking in tongues. This should cause us to compare even more carefully our experiences with Scripture. Third, studies have shown how speaking and praying in tongues can be a learned behavior. Through hearing and observing others speak in tongues, a person can learn the procedure even subconsciously. And I will say I don't think that the article is necessarily saying true gift of speaking in tongues. But the behavior can be learned subconsciously. This is the most likely explanation for the vast majority of instances of speaking, praying in tongues among Christians. Fourth, the feeling of self-edification is natural. The human body produces adrenaline and endorphins when it experiences something new, exciting, emotional, and or disconnected from rational thought, end quote. Again, it's because I love my church family and because we know that there is widespread counterfeit abuse of tongues, widespread counterfeit behavior. It's because of that that I caution us to just carefully consider the biblical gift of tongues. This gift is not to be feared, it is not to be avoided, so long as it is biblical. There's much more biblical criteria for us to see here. Now, Paul again recognizes the massive pendulum swing that is possible by the people in the Corinthian church. So lest anyone write off the miraculous gift of speaking in tongues, he is quick to say in verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul, in his defense of his position, of his, in his defense of the correction and teaching on this subject, just used a figure of speech to make a key point. Five words that I understand and they understand is better than 10,000 in tongues that cannot be understood by anyone, regardless of the experience, I might add. 
That's a figure of speech, so we mustn't take it literally. It doesn't mean that only four words with the mind are not as good as 10,000 in tongues. Paul is saying that any amount of words in tongues without understanding that do not result in edification, uh, excuse me, any amount of words that have understanding and result in edification are better than any amount of words in a tongue without edification and understanding. This is similar to what Jesus said to, to, to the people who are asking him about forgiveness. He said to forgive not just seven times, but 70 times seven. Of course, that doesn't mean we no longer have to forgive after offense number 490. Some of us would be counting if it did. <laughs> Jesus was teaching clearly to forgive without limit. And here we have every reason to believe Paul is teaching us the immeasurable value of speaking with understanding, including speaking in tongues with understanding, versus speaking in a tongue that no one, including the speaker, understands. If someone else can't say amen to it, then it shouldn't be said, at least not in the church, according to these verses. Verse 20, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. You know, that's the biblical way of saying, don't be stupid. Don't be immature. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. This is very interesting. Paul is telling the Christians to stop and just think about what they're doing. Think about the behavior you're exhibiting. Stop, and he's telling them, stop thinking shallowly like little children. Grow up and think deeper about your doing, what you're doing with the gift of tongues. He's saying this because the Corinthians were indeed out of control with this miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. And speaking of miracles, sadly, people are looking for signs and wonders, perhaps even to build up their faith when Scripture teaches they should be looking for the edification of the church through revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. There is a reason Paul hit that nail on the head four times in a row. Revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching, not an unintelligible experience. He emphasizes these four points because he knows our human faithless tendency to be mesmerized by signs and wonders. Humanity has always been that way. And at times, God in his patience was willing to use miracles through men, men who performed mighty miracles to prove that they were speaking on behalf of him. But as a number of scholars have pointed out, a study of Bible history reveals to us that God rarely gave someone the power to personally do miracles. He gave it to Moses and Joshua. Follow this. He gave it to Moses and Joshua for about 60 years. And the next time we see it, he gave it to Elijah and Elisha again for about 60 or 70 years. And then it didn't show up again until Jesus came on the scene with his disciples. And we see that he gave it to the apostles in the early church again in full force and in scripture and in history for a handful of decades. Again, somewhere perhaps around 70 years. And in every case, this power was given supremely to authenticate God's new message to mankind. In the New Testament case, it was the new covenant. Mark 16, 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by signs that followed. Now, lest we add to Scripture, we need to acknowledge that Scripture does not say that speaking in tongues is no longer possible today. And healing and prophecy not that any such prophecy will add to the written word of God, but that it will substantiate it, even if by miraculous communication to God, especially to someone who has never heard the message before. Nowhere in Scripture, and if I've missed something, please let me know, nowhere in Scripture have I found the list that says these spiritual gifts will cease at 70 AD, and these will continue. These miraculous gifts will cease after two generations, and these, the practical gifts, albeit still spiritual, will continue on for the history of the church. 
We just don't see that information in Scripture. There are no dates to be found. There is no cease statement to be found other than when the perfect comes. And at that time, prophecy and knowledge will stop too. We're clearly not there. However, we must recognize the hand of God as evidenced in history and in Scripture. There are many points we could submit on this. Here are two that help us, that lead us to recognize that the miraculous gifts, including tongues, have largely, but not necessarily completely, been limited in their distribution by the Holy Spirit. First is the striking lack of teaching on them in the majority of the New Testament, and especially the omission of any comment on them in the latter epistles. Remember, there is only one verse in the Gospel of Mark that mentions tongue, tongues. There are a few references in Acts and then 1 Corinthians. Acts and 1 Corinthians are the only two books in the entire New Testament to even mention tongues. Of even more striking nature is that Paul wrote nine more biblical New Testament epistles and he didn't reference speaking in tongues even one time in the latter nine. We cannot ignore this fact. He warns us here in verse 20 to think like adults, to use mature logic. Does it not seem incredibly odd that Paul would not be giving any more advice, advice on the proper practice of miraculously speaking in tongues and healing people and prophesying new covenant truths that perhaps had not even been heard by the individual yet? Think about it today. If God let loose the ability to speak in tongues in our church and in all the churches in the Seattle region. And if there was ample opportunity for us to misunderstand and wildly abuse the gifts like was happened at Corinth, surely God would have continued to give counsel and instruction in the New Testament on the proper use of these mind-blowing, headline-making, supernatural abilities. If even one Christian in the entire Seattle region had the miraculous gift of healing, it would make world news. And I'm not talking about God healing people even frequently through the effective prayers of certain righteous men or women, James chapter 5. We're not talking about answered prayer. We're talking about someone who, like the Apostle Paul, had the spiritual gift to turn to someone and at will say, get up and walk, be healed of your cancer or whatever disease, and then even in one case, die, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. He pronounced them, he pronounced death upon them. This is a person who had perfect commanding power from the Holy Spirit over aspects of the natural realm. No one in the world has that gift anymore. At least not that I have ever seen. The ability to pray and uh, the ability to pray effectively and see God heal, absolutely. The ability to command healing without fail, I've never seen it. Again, I recognize that many people have been healed by prayer. I have friends who have been prayed over and healed instantly. But we're referring, rather, of course, as you see here, the gift of healing, the power, the miraculous power that the prophets, the apostles, and the early church had to instantly choose to speak in a tongue to someone of another language. It wasn't something that had to be waited to be worked up. They could turn to a foreigner and minister the gospel to them. We are seeing very little of that today. I have a lot of notes. History indicates that some of the miraculous gifts, as we've discussed here and even in the scriptures, some of these miraculous gifts were soon limited in scope once they achieved their purpose. That is to substantiate, to prove, to authenticate the new covenant, the new gospel message to both the Jews and of even more shocking nature to the Greeks, the non-Jews. So my first point as to why these miraculous gifts have largely been withdrawn shortly some point after Pentecost in the early church 
is that both the latter writings of the New Testament and history nearly cease to speak of them. If that kind of power was running rampant, it would be recorded in the pages of world history among every single nation who experienced it. And surely Paul would have continued to write on such mind-blowing, supernatural abilities. But for some reason, he totally stopped. Second point why we must be maturely cautious with the pursuit and practice of miraculous sign gifts is because Jesus himself downplayed miracles, including healing. He identified them as being somewhat in opposition to faith because faith believes without seeing. But some, like Doubting Thomas, have to see. They have to touch. And God, in his mercy, allows some to see and to touch so they will believe but it is very, very few. Listen to the words of John chapter 4, verse 46 to 54. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless, you believe, unless people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee, end quote. Observe the big picture here. Jesus had only performed one miracle in Cana, and he is already dismayed that they have asked for a second. He hesitated, notice, to even perform the miracle. It wasn't until the child's father pressed him that Jesus even agreed to heal the child. So let's balance out perhaps this message and not to not neglect one truth for another. We need to understand that it is not wrong to seek the power of God, the gifts of God, to, to, to desire the gifts that the Holy Spirit would give us, whether that's tongues or any other spiritual gift, and especially prayer, which we see taught all throughout the New Testament. But if we seek it, we should seek it for the edification of the church and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Let's look at verse 21. I need to move through the rest of this quickly. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's an Old Testament quote. quote. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip over that, um, which is another way for the pastor to say I'm not sure what exactly what that means. No, it is an Old Testament quote, the judgment upon Israel through foreign tongues. And it, it seems that Paul is saying here, I mean, it's, it's open for interpretation. I'm open for discussion. But it seems that Paul is saying, just as those foreign tongues brought no benefit to Israel, it brought judgment. So your foreign tongues are not bringing benefit to the church. Verse 22. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, an ungifted man or, or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Let me simply say, that is the result of the proper use of the gifts. People will repent of sin. They will stand in the worship of God, and they will know and affirm that God is among you. Repentance, we're talking about salvation because a person cannot even worship God apart from salvation. Apart from salvation, you know what Romans 3 says, none seek God, none understand, none do good. So the worship being referred here to clearly indicates the worship that comes from salvation. If tongues are being used properly, people will repent of their secret sins, be saved, worship God, and affirm that he is in that place. Verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? 
When you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and, in each, turn, in, and each in turn. And one must interpret, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. That rule alone would silence most tongues in the churches. And let him speak to himself and, and God. Carefully note that that last statement does not state that he is to speak to himself and to God without understanding. Many draw that conclusion from that statement. It simply says, if there's no interpreter for others present, keep it to yourself. Why is this principle so important? One of the, one of the real problems in Christianity is this statement. Are you ready for this? God told me to tell you I shudder, just, just so my whole church family knows, I shudder every time I hear that. God told me to tell you. Why is that such a dangerous statement? Because nobody else heard God say it. It can't be what? Verified. So, likewise, it would make sense for Paul to say, you're not allowed to interpret for yourself in the church. Especially in the context of verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. And I believe this very likely implies even if you're prophesying in tongues. So that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Paul just left another pillar statement for us. God is not a, a God of confusion, but of peace. Sadly, little has confused the church like speaking in tongues. Something is bad wrong here. This, this peace principle in verse 33, this rule, this character of God is to be demonstrated in the churches, especially if there are tongues. Verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak. But are, subject to be, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. It's very possible he's still referring to tongues, by the way. Tongues and not tongues. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Recognize, Paul is not speaking degradingly to women here. He is simply speaking reality. God in his good sovereignty for reasons only he knows, spoke the word through men. So Paul uses this to guide. I won't comment more on women keeping silent in the church, etc. We have a whole sermon devoted to this when we were back in that chapter, chapter 11. That's June 10th, if you would like to hear our study on the role of men and women. There is no end to the misunderstandings and misapplications on that point. Men and women are equal in value, equal in dignity, but different in God-given roles. So we won't dive into that anymore here. Verse 37 as we wrap up. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Paul has described in detail the improper use of tongues, and he has also taught the right way, which leads to edification. He says to earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. And as we follow Scripture here at our church, we take that same position. We earnestly desire the proclamation of the Word, the spiritual truth, and we do not forbid the speaking of tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly, biblical manner. We, prom we promote this orderliness, as you know, by preparing an order of service, delegating it to different leaders in the church, men, women in the church, to participate and serve. And I will say, praise God, we regularly see the Holy Spirit working among us working powerfully, working peacefully, 
and in an orderly manner. Our prayers of the Holy Spirit and the Word will always be the ultimate authority in our corporate worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word that gui- and your Spirit that guides us in all truth. Lord, we are quick to say we don't know it all. The work of the Holy Spirit is amazing. Who can grasp the mind of the Lord? And yet you have given us instruction, and so it is that instruction that we desire to grasp. Help us, Lord, not to mistake the power of the Spirit and also not to limit the power of the Spirit. We want to see you work mightily for the edification of every person in this church. And we ask, Lord, that you would do it in such a way that if an unbeliever enters in, they will be convicted of the secret sins of their own heart. They will repent and fall down on their face before God and worship Him and affirm that God is in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.